0: We are continuing in our series in the book of Romans that we are calling the gospel's greatest hits. And the reason why we're calling it that is because of the fact that the book of Romans is an amazing summary of our faith. For in it, we learn what the good news is, namely that God saves a broken world through Jesus Christ. We also learn who the good news is for, that it's for everyone, every single person. God desires that we would all know him and be saved by him. And last but not least, it teaches us how we are then to live in light of that good news. And that's really what we've been talking about the past several weeks, is how we live in light of the good news that we've received. And so uh, as we come to Romans chapter 13, before we even open that book, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for setting aside this time and this space to meet with us, your people. We thank you for the gift of your word, that through it you teach us, you teach us who you are, you teach us who we're called to be, and you teach us what it means to walk in faith with you. And so Lord, as we once more come before that word, we ask that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, there are certain moments in life that redefine and reshape everything else. Certain moments that take place that actually uh, redefine our very relationships with the people around us. Moments like getting married or uh, giving birth to a child or adopting a child into your family. I think back to the day that I was married and and on that day a lot changed for Jenny and I. First and foremost, our relationship with the government changed as we entered into this new uncharted territory known as uh, taxes filing jointly. That was really fascinating. But a lot of other things changed as well. My relationships changed. My relationship with her family changed as now they were my family. And her relationship with my family changed as now they became her family. But more than that, a lot of other relationships changed as well when it came to deciding what church are we going to be a part of. It's not simply me now choosing for myself. It's together, what church will we belong to? Where will we live? What community will we invest in? You see, that moment, that that new relationship in our life reshaped every other relationship. And the reason I highlight that is because That's really what we've been talking about as we've been looking at the whole book of Romans, the reality that when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it redefines everything else. We call it the gospel-saturated life, a life in which we know that because we have this relationship with Jesus, it reshapes how we approach our world. It redefines the key relationships that we have with those around us. And especially as we've been looking at Romans chapter 13, we've already started to see some of the ways in which our relationships to the world have changed. Last week, as we were looking at Romans 1 to 3, we looked at our relationship to government and and considered what what does it mean to be in right relationship and in service to those who are in authority over us. And this week, as we're looking at the rest of Romans 13, we're going to actually see how this relationship with Jesus Christ changes our relationships with our neighbors, but also our relationships with ourselves. And so with that in mind, I want to invite you to open up to Romans chapter 13 with me. If you're using the Pew Bible, we're going to be on page 948. And the reason I want you to have your Bible open is so you can follow along with us, so you can study this text together. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. If you don't have your own Bible, take the Pew Bible. We would love for that to be our gift to you, so that you can go ahead and study this along with us, so that you can underline and highlight and make your own notes in the margins. Just consider that our gift to you. But we are looking at Romans uh, chapter 13, and we're uh, specifically looking at verses 8 to 14. Verses 8 to 14. Because verses 8 to 14 highlight the fact that because of Jesus, we now have a new relationship with our neighbors and with ourselves. First, we we have kind of a new relationship with our neighbors. This is what Paul writes. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. See, right here, Paul says that because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, because of this new relationship with God, it reshapes our relationships with our neighbors. He says we are called now to love our neighbors. Now, often when we use that word love in our culture today, we kind of connect it with a lot of uh, sentimental things, like flowers and candy and Hallmark cards and Valentine's Day. But that's not at all what Paul is talking about here. That when he says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has filled the law, love there is a verb, not a noun. He talks about love being something that's active, He uses this word agapao, and what that means quite simply is it's the commitment of our will to seek the good of another person, and it's demonstrated in acts of service. It's a commitment of our will to seek the good of another person, and it is demonstrated in acts of service. Notice there's no uh, emotional language there. There's nothing touchy-feely about this love. There's nothing warm and fuzzy about it. What he's saying is he's saying this is a love that's active, that's a verb that moves us into serving others and it has nothing to do with how you feel. You don't wait until you suddenly like the person to start serving them. You don't wait until that person, person initiates a relationship with you before you start seeking their good. Rather, what he's saying here is he's saying this call to love is a call that is incumbent on every single person who f- calls themselves a follower of Jesus, regardless of how you feel. That's what he's talking about here. Love is active. Love is demonstrated in tangible acts of of service that are for the benefit of other people. That's how he's defining love. And specifically, if you look at verses 8 to 10, you, you uh, realize that there are kind of three characteristics of love that he touches on briefly here. The first thing, the first characteristic of love that he touches on is right there in verse 8, and it's the unending nature of love. The unending nature of love You see, uh, verse 8, what leads into it is is what Paul actually says in verse 7. He says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. But then verse 8 he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He says there is one debt that cannot be paid off and never should be. And it is the debt to love your neighbor. And Jesus defines who our neighbor is. I mean, you go to the, the, that very famous parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, your neighbor is like the Samaritan, the person who's furthest from you, the person who is the religious and cultural and socioeconomic outsider. He's saying, your neighbor isn't just the people you like, it's everybody. Every single person on the face of this planet is your neighbor, and you have a debt to them, Paul is saying, and that is you owe them your love. You owe them your service. You owe it to them to seek their good no matter what. This is something that, you, that never stops. And this is very consistent with what Jesus himself taught. You know, uh, Peter comes up to Jesus at one point. He says, you know, when my brother has wronged me, when somebody has wronged me, how many times should I forgive them? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And his point there is, is like you never stop forgiving them. Likewise, in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, you know, you've heard uh, that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemies. And likewise, even here in Romans, we've already encountered, he says, that we are to bless those who persecute us. See, people often come in and say, okay, I get it. Love is something that should never end. I should always be loving my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? Paul, I think, in, along with Jesus, would say, Everybody. And it's not dependent upon how they treat you. It's not dependent on how they feel about you. It's not dependent on what they say about you. It's not dependent on whether or not they can return the favor. He says love is unending. It's something that we owe to every single human being on the face of the planet. That's what active love is all about. But there's a second facet of love a second characteristic that paul highlights and this is in verse 9 he says for the commandments you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder you shall not steal you shall not covet and any other commandment are summed up in this word you shall love your neighbor as yourself he says, they're summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I think what he's saying there is he's saying, look, if, if this calling to love our neighbor as ourself sums up the whole law, then what that means is that our love is shaped and defined by the will of God. You see, we've gotten into this culture where love is subjective, where we think that we get to define what love looks like and how it's expressed to other people. But what Paul is saying here is he says, no, this call to love your stuff sums up the whole law. And that if you really want to know what love looks like, you look at the word of God to shape our expression of love, to determine its boundaries and its limits, to determine the ways in which it is given and expressed, to highlight the ways that, uh, what it should ultimately point people to. So it's really, really uh, important, I think, in our world where, you know, people often ask that question, what is love? There's a very famous Saturday Night Live skit when I was growing up as a teenager. where That was like the refrain of this song. What is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. No, it's just like, no, that's, Paul is saying very, very clearly, this, I know what love is. You want to know what love is, you look at the word of God and what he teaches us about what it means to serve people. He says, when you look at the commandments, what you realize is when you look at the commandments through the lens of your new identity in Jesus Christ, you see in the commandments God's love for us. That the commandments are given to help us understand the kind of life that God desires us to live. He's saying that this word doesn't trump those commandments, it summarizes them. That God isn't trying to rain on our parade or put up some sort of divine red tape by putting these laws into place. What he's saying is, he's saying, my commandments show you the life that you should live. They're an expression of love. Parents, you guys get this, right? Don't run in the street. Why? Are we trying to keep our kids from having a good time? No, trying to keep them from getting run over by a car because we love them. Love always constrains. Love always has directions. It's always shaped and pointed, by, and pointed towards something. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, look, if you really want to know how to love people, look at the word of God. Look at his laws. Let that shape how you interact with others. And I think that this is really important because what it allows us to do is it allows us to actually speak the truth in love. Because sometimes love needs to be given Unconditionally. To people who are just like hurting and all they need to know is that they're loved and accepted. But sometimes love also needs to be expressed in speaking the truth. That when we see a loved one, you know, going down a road that we know is ultimately going to lead to their destruction. A loved one doing something that we know ultimately is not going to satisfy, is not going to point them to God as the source of their hope and their good. What, what Paul is saying here is, here is we got we to gotta speak that into their lives. We have to be willing to say, hey, I love you, and because I love you, I know that this isn't God's will for your life. That if you keep walking down this path, I know that it's not going to satisfy, that it's ultimately going to disappoint, that it's going to destroy your soul. And so hear me when I speak and, and, and say to you, I, because I love you, I have to tell you the truth. See, it's a love that's shaped by God's word. And so if we're sitting there, and we're wrestling, what do I do in a certain circumstance? What do I do in this particular relationship? We go back to the word of God and say, what would God have us do? What does this word tell us? And in doing so, we will better be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. But there's a third characteristic of love that's highlighted here. And namely, that love does no wrong. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the filling of the law. That's what he says in verse 10. It does no wrong, but rather in all circumstances seeks the good and the benefit of the people that we're in relationship with. That when we speak to them, we always consider the question, how can my words build them up? How can they be for their good? That when we serve other people, we serve in ways that actually meet real needs and give people actual dignity. It does no harm. It seeks the good of the other person. In fact, one of the things that I love is I actually like looking back at Luther's small catechism, his comments on the commandments, because one of the things I love about his comments is when he comments on them, he doesn't just comment on the negative, what we're not supposed to do. He also highlights the positive, what this does look like in action. And specifically, when he was talking about that fifth commandment, you shall not murder, he says this, he says, We are to fear and love God so that we neither endanger nor harm the lives of our neighbors, but instead help and support them in all of life's needs. Love does no harm, but it seeks the good and the benefit of the other person. It's an unending thing that we owe to our neighbors. It's shaped by the word of God, and it is ultimately given for their good. That's what love is. That's what Paul is talking about in this passage. And he says, and that is something that as long as we draw breath on this earth, we are called to give. And the reason why is because it reflects the gospel-saturated life. This is the love that Jesus himself had for us. That when he looked into our world and saw it broken and just wrapped up in darkness and in sin, God said, I am going to enter in to pursue my people. I am going to give them all of myself to the very, very end. I am willing to be nailed to a cross and buried in a tomb so that they might know my love. It was unending but it was also shaped by the word of God. I love how Jesus can step into really tense situations and he speaks words of truth in such loving ways that even as he sits there and, and he's defending the woman who's about to be stoned after her accusers walk away, Jesus says, is there, is there no one left to condemn you? And she says, no one. He says, then neither do I condemn you, but now go, leave your life of sin. He sits by the woman at the well, and he says, you know, I'm going to tell you how you can have this life of God, but, but first go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. It's like, you're right. You've had four. The guy you're with is not your husband. How do you say that? And yet at the same time, communicate love, in which he basically says, I am the one that you've been waiting for. And whoever believes in me has, has a, a, the water of life welling up from within them. Jesus' love is unending. It's a love that that reflects the word of God, his will and his heart for the world. It's a love that ultimately seeks our good. That by going and dying for us and rising again, what he gave us is the greatest gift imaginable. Number one, we're forgiven. But two, now we're saved for eternal life with God. We're made his children. That by believing in Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, a new identity. See, the love that Paul is talking about here is a love that ultimately points us back to Christ. The one who reflects and epitomizes love in all of its beauty and perfection. He says that's what we owe to each other. That's what the gospel-saturated life is all about. That's how it redefines and reshapes your relationships with every other human being on the face of the planet. But what's also amazing is how this gospel-saturated life actually shapes and redefines our relationship with ourselves. I mean, listen to these words in, in verses 11 and following. He says, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone See, what he's saying right there is he's saying that because you are in Christ, because you are living this gospel-saturated life, it is time to wake up. It is time to wake up and live life in light of your salvation, to live a life that reflects your ultimate destiny, your ultimate identity as the people of God. Because, yes, when Jesus dies for us, he forgives us our sins, but he's also now destined us for eternity. That one day we will rise again and we will live in a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more weeping or crying or pain anymore, where disease and violence are wiped away, where there is no more darkness. And what Paul is saying right here is, and that's a life that you don't have to wait for until your resurrection. It's a life that you can live right now. Your life, your eternal life begins today. Wake up and live in light of it. And what that takes is a willingness to to take an honest look at our lives. To look a little more closely and to ask ourselves the question, are the ways that I'm living right now, are they reflective of who I was or of who Christ is making me to be? Are the things that I'm doing, do they reflect who I was or who Christ is making me to be? I think that's part of the reason why Paul lists off all this other stuff. He says, let's cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy. He says, no, put on Jesus Christ. You are destined to become more and more like Jesus. And so we have to be willing to look at our lives and say, am I walking in darkness or in light? Do my choices, my behaviors, my interactions with other people point to the fact that I am a child of God? Or do they look backwards to what Christ has rescued me from, a child of darkness? We have to have an honest self-assessment where we're willing to do that. And I think that's why the grace of God is so necessary because oftentimes it's hard to, to take a hard look at ourselves. We don't want to admit the things that we've done wrong or the ways we've fallen short. But he says, but when you know Jesus, you know that God loves you, that he has his, the best in mind for you, it's, it's easier to look at those, at those dark places because you know that God's not going to reject you. What he wants to do is bring light there, bring forgiveness, bring freedom. And by the way, that, that, that task becomes a lot easier when you have other people walking with you. It's one of the reasons why we say here at Trinity you can't grow spiritually unless you're connected relationally. It's because we are called to help each other name those, those areas of darkness, to identify those blind spots, those things that we can't see, and to encourage each other in that walk and in that journey. I love how Rich Lamb puts it. He's a, he's a writer, and he was one time asked, well, what is the Christian life all about? And he says, I could summarize the Christian life in this way. It's the pursuit of God in the company of friends. It's the pursuit of God in the company of friends. It's living in light of our eternity as we walk together as the church, as the family of God, as his people on mission together. This journey of self-examination and growth in Jesus is a lot easier when you do it in the company of friends, when you're connected to a church community, when you're involved in a small group, when you're opening your life up to others and letting them hold you accountable to your walk with Christ what he's talking about here last but not least i mean he says that this we do this all because of the fact that that's what's already been given to us he says put on the lord jesus christ make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires what he's saying is he's saying look the moment you're baptized the moment you become a believer in jesus you now have the holy spirit dwelling within you you are clothed in christ That's your ultimate destiny. That's the hope to which you cling. And he says, you already have it. Just put it on. The Holy Spirit already dwells within your heart. Just listen. He's already speaking and guiding. So follow. He's already given you all the power and the strength you need. So cling to him. That's really what he's saying here. I think too often the reason we get discouraged in our journeys with God is because we're relying on ourselves. What he's saying is here he's saying, no, put on Christ. Put on Christ who, just as he had the power to forgive you and save you, so he now has the power to walk with, uh, to walk with you. He's given you the power of the Holy Spirit within you to transform you from the inside out. That is your ultimate destiny. He says, this is really what the gospel-saturated life is all about. It's realizing that we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is not of ourselves. It is a free gift of God, but it's a gift that we get to enjoy every single day as we walk with him, that we experience its blessings, its benefits, its fruit as we cling to Christ. And it does reshape everything, reshapes how we relate to our world, reshapes how we relate to our neighbors, ultimately reshapes how we even relate to and think about ourselves. It's experiencing the beauty of eternity in the present. As we walk with confidence toward that future day when he will come again and make everything new. That is my hope for us. That's my prayer for us. That's Paul's prayer for the church. And it's in light of that that I want to close with a word of prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed saved us for an incredible life, an abundant life with you that that life is a life in which we give loving service to everyone we meet but ultimately it's a life that's fed and nourished and sustained by clinging to you by believing what you say about us that we are your beloved and forgiven children that no one that no one and nothing can separate us from that love and so lord we pray help us put on christ that as we go out into the world, people might see your glory reflected in and through us as we walk in the light of the Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.